and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys here, and uh, it's good to be back with you today as we open God's Word together. Uh, it's one of those days, I don't know if you've had those where you have a cough that's just this tickle right here. So you'll have to pardon me if I cough a little bit today. Uh, I'll try not to, but it's just that uh, constant tickle. So if you'd be praying for me. Well, it's good to hear Pastor Hal preach last week. We're back in our series today uh, called So That You May Believe. That's our title for it. Uh, For you newer folks, this is simply walking through the gospel of John, like verse by verse. We're a bit slow. <laughs> uh, we have this saying here at Bentry, it goes like this, we go deep to grow deep. And what that means is simply uh, that if the Bible is truly God's word, which we think that it is, and it is God's will revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, if God reveals himself in this book, we should know it, right? Uh, since God reveals himself in this book, then knowing it is the most important vocation of the Christian life if we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now hear me, I'm not saying that the knowledge about God is the same as a relationship with God. What I'm saying is that if we have a relationship with God, though, this is how we begin to grow that relationship. We firmly believe that if we have made, been made alive in Christ Jesus, born again, the Holy Spirit of God is living and active within us as we read this Bible and we study God's words to us, the Holy Spirit begins to use that knowledge of God to then grow us into maturity in Christ Jesus. Make sense? That's why one of the core values here at Bentry since day one has been biblical truth. Because everything we do uh, besides that builds on that truth. It's based on that firm foundation. So when we say let's go deep into God's word so that we can grow deep in our relationship with him, that is what we actually mean. So we're going to be in John chapter 6. If you want to go ahead and get your Bibles out, something to take notes with. We're going to cover a lot of ground, picking up where we were a couple of weeks uh, ago, just before Easter. I want us to, I just want to thank you for being patient with us as we work our way carefully through John 6. We are more than halfway through this chapter, which is really saying something. It's a long chapter. Now, if you've missed any of these weeks, go back and pick that up on, say, YouTube. Well, that's the only place you can get it, so YouTube. And our objective is to get at the meaning of what Jesus is saying here and how to apply that meaning uh, to our lives here. My point is that most people read the words And then simply let them just kind of go by without really asking, what is Jesus actually meaning here? Because Jesus has really begun for the very first time to reveal some of the deepest truths about who he is as the son of God and who the father is and their relationship, how they relate to each other. And most importantly, for those that would follow Jesus, real believers, how we relate to God. Or another way to say it is how we are saved. The doctrines of grace, 
straight from Jesus himself. That's just the words we've been covering, right? Well, let's pick it up in verse 41. But you need to know that the setting changes now. The conversation moves locations uh, to a different point location here. I personally think this happens right here. The conversation moves to the local synagogue in Capernaum. Let's read it together here. You don't have to read it. You just follow along. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whom the father, whom, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? The crowd, man, they, they don't like what Jesus is saying, do they? If you've been following along, picture this. Jesus preaches what he preaches and then begins to walk toward the synagogue. Some of the crowd begins to follow him. But as they go, there's this low level of complaining. You just hear this grumbling that that we really shouldn't be surprised that the crowd is upset since Jesus has just preached the necessity for God's grace and salvation and their inability to earn God's salvation on their own. They're upset about that. Now notice what ticks these people off. When Jesus says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven, they're still looking for him to meet their physical need for bread. They're hungry again, and they want bread like he had provided the day before. Instead of engaging with Jesus and saying, help us understand more what you're saying, they begin to get upset, and they attack Jesus's character. Now, let me give you a warning here that may help you as you're learning from Jesus about the doctrines of grace And maybe kind of getting excited a little bit. Like it's kind of like finally dawning on you what this is about. Like you're really starting to see the overall uh, scripture, how this relates together. I get it, I do. But you have to be very careful in how you relate the doctrines of grace. Because let's just be honest, this stuff can be volatile. It can really get people uh, upset. But the warning, here it is, like this crowd getting upset with Jesus for saying what he says. If you start sharing what Jesus says, if you start saying uh, what he says, people will get upset. And I mean Christians, because this is totally different from the way most people have been taught doctrine in the last hundred years in the United States. I've shared with you back in the late 1980s and early 1990s when I would hear the doctrines of grace preached, um, I, I would begin to get upset quickly. And sometimes I would get, well, a little snippy with people in arguments. And I would, they were trying to teach the old school doctrines of grace that had been taught for, for centuries. And in fact, I damaged well, let's just say some really good friendships back then because I argued with people. Man, I fought against the doctrines of grace so hard personally. I argued analogies and I 
argued scripture and the reason I got upset with the doctrines of grace and indeed why this crowd that's following Jesus is getting upset with him and many of them have already left is because when people hear of mankind's of their own total spiritual inability, their total depravity and their need for God to intervene in an electing kind of grace and salvation. It's like something begins to just kind of boil over in people and they disengage and simply leave like most of this crowd leaves Jesus. Let's be honest, most people don't know why they even need a savior, do they? Or they try to argue and grumble like this crowd of people following Jesus. They just get upset. And as I shared with you before, In my life, over about a 10, 15, almost 20-year period of wrestling with this, uh, fighting against what I uh, picture here as the doctrines of grace, I came to believe that they were true. Now, that's a long story I'll share with someday. Maybe I'll write a book. But I was slow in the process. But as I studied Scripture, studied church history, all the way back to the New Testament, reading a bunch of books by old dead guys, and, and, and once I understood what Jesus was actually preaching here, then something start, interesting started to happen to me. The scriptures that I thought proved the doctrines of grace wrong actually did the exact opposite when I read them in context. I simply ran out of scriptures that I could hold to my anti-reformed doctrine. So as I began to study and understand Reformed doctrine more and more over the years, and I began to teach it and preach it, I was genuinely surprised at people's strong opposition to the doctrines of grace. But I shouldn't have been surprised. I had had them. They have them here in chapter 6. When I came across this section of Scripture that had any part of the doctrines of grace in them, and I would begin to share what I learned, a few people would get upset. They'd go, hey, Pastor Paul, I want to meet with you. Most people were like, wow, this is awesome. Thank you, pastor. I love this, just understanding this. But a few got a little bit angry. And and what was really disheartening to me as a young pastor is that some people wouldn't even want to see me or talk to me ever again. And when I tried to reason with them and say, hey, can we just look at scripture together? And, And can we work through any questions or problems frustrations, you have disagreements. A few were like, no way, I don't want to hear. It's like, la, 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 la. And yet when I pointed out to them, this is straight, this is Jesus talking about this. They would go, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Now, since I've been preaching this stuff for many years now, I've kind of used to people getting upset at least at first. And so I've tried to alter my preaching. Hopefully that doesn't happen too much, but, or, um, Simply leaving, uh, what I was going to say is, people used to get uh, upset at first, or simply they started leaving and not wanting to look at Scripture together, so I kind of altered my preaching a little bit. So the reason I say all that is, if you're getting uh, what Jesus is saying here to this crowd, and you're like on fire about it, and you're going, yeah, I get this. Paul, this is awesome. I've had so many calls and emails. Just be warned, as you'll get pushback, and that's okay. Just be gentle, relax, be patient with people in their journey up the discipleship pathway. 
This is a tier two issue. Walk slow with your friends through this and present it. They're believers too. It's okay. And second, if you find yourself upset, if you find yourself confused like this crowd or even angry about what we're preaching about this stuff, just hang on. Let's get through the scriptures together. Come visit with me and we can walk through it. And you might say, but Paul, although we've heard you preach on this stuff like Back when we went through the book of Ephesians a few years ago. Back when we went through Genesis together. We preached on this stuff then. And you say, there's just so much of it here, Paul. And I say, I get it. But that's because Jesus, I mean, he's the one that's bringing it up. We're just talking what he's saying. The doctrines of grace are from Jesus, not me. By the way, I have other pastors that listen to our service online. And... uh They say, Paul, I can't believe you're preaching that stuff. Not because they don't agree with it. They do. But they say, Paul, I'd lose my job if I preach that. So what they do is skip over it or they try to keep everybody happy. By the way, if you want to make everybody happy, sell ice cream. Because that's (laughs) at Bluebell. Bluebell make everybody happy. But we can't do that. We can't skip, uh, skip scripture. One, because we go verse by verse and uh, we don't skip the hard stuff and try to make you happy. Uh, We preach all of it, which makes us holy instead. Um, Folks, this is not some kind of new strange teaching, by the way. This is historic, orthodox Christianity. Uh, This The sad reason so many of you uh, and Christians are uh, unfamiliar with Reformed doctrine is that many preachers just play like it does not exist in Scripture, and they skip over it. Or they hit it so light, so quick, you go, what was that? What were you talking about? So, But we see it with Jesus right here. This is the reason I'm bringing it out, because the, the crowd is upset with him. These people are upset with Jesus over the exact same thing. So he has just given them this truth with the doctrines of grace. They don't like it, none. They begin to grumble, as it says in verse 41. What's happening now is that the leaders of this big crowd began to follow Jesus to the local synagogue. They're walking here, and then they'll be in the synagogue. They are the ones that have been arguing and talking with Jesus, and there have been this, there had been this big crowd with them at first. But most of the crowd begins to kind of peel away. Now, we understand that because if you skip down to verse 59, you'll look in your uh, Bible as Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So we know that they switched to the synagogue. And the synagogue can't hold 20, 25,000 people. So as they're walking toward the synagogue, you get the picture. These people began to grumble. Grumble is a funny word in the original Greek. Uh, it's ganguzo. That sounds Italian. Ganguzo. Here it is. Grumble, a grumble, uh, mutter, murmur, complain in a soft whisper. Why don't we say it together? Ganguzo. Here we go. Ganguzo. Man, that makes me want some spaghetti right there. <laughs> when they get to the synagogue, Jesus begins to teach. And he goes right back to what he's been teaching this crowd before that we read about over the last few weeks from verse 35 through 40. Now this time he's going to back it up by some evidence, the Hebrew scriptures or what we call the Old Testament. 
but he's also going to back it up from experience. The first thing here is John 6, verse 43. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. You may want to underline that. That's a good line. Do not grumble among yourselves. The old King James Version of the Bible, if you have that in your lap, says murmur. Either word is what we call an automatopoeia. That's kind of fun to say. The words sound like what they mean, like the word croak uh, for a frog. It's like what he says, the frog, the frog, the frog croaks. Um, it's the, the name of the word or the sound of the word is what it is. So the point is that Jesus hears these people murmuring, murmur, 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 and he understands why. It is this teaching. The crowd is confused. Some are angry. Many have left. And uh, because he's going, instead of going deeper, they just peeled away. And like we said, instead of making a logical debate on the scriptures, what they do is they actually attack Jesus's character. In a way, what they're saying to each other is, don't listen to this guy. We know his mother and father. He's a local guy. He's just ignorant. What's interesting is that although Jesus was a local boy, they didn't realize his virgin birth and that Jesus His real father was God the Father. Now notice, as we read, Jesus doesn't try to defend himself, does he? So let's look at what Jesus does say in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now Jesus begins to teach by doing something good teachers do. He brings up something that he has already brought up, but he restates it in a new and different way. He's repeating what he just had said, especially in verse 37 that we spent so many uh, weeks on. But this time, Jesus sharpens his words, his language to make it very clear. There's no way around what he's saying. By the way, I spent uh, so much time on verse 35 through 40 because we're getting to this section of scripture and if I hadn't, this would really mess you up. Because Jesus is so sharp to, in his words to this crowd here, this verse has always been a debate among those who are willing to accept the doctrines of grace or not. And those who resisted on a rational or um, humanistic grounds. When I said I have read a lot of old school theologians on this, I ain't kidding. This is why we study this at Bentry. It's a big deal that most churches today simply just gloss over. Guys have gone round and round on this for 2,000 years. Dudes have made arguments uh, for and against. Dudes like Augustine, Pelagius, Luther, Erasmus, Calvin, Arminianus. And some tried to use those past debates between theologians as some kind of weird way to say, well, since they debated it, we shouldn't debate it at all, should we? We shouldn't even try. Now, that's just strange to me. I'm thinking we should read and study even what these, these old guys say and see if we can learn from them. So we read those guys, both sides, over the years. Now, I'm just make sure that we're clear here. This is Jesus, though, preaching in John 6, This is not somehow my opinion. This is Jesus' words. Break down the verse with me. Jesus is getting really basic, so let's get basic with him. You ready? 
No one can come to me unless. Now think about this. When it says no one can, C-A-N, come, what does that mean? The word can speaks of a person's ability, doesn't it? Or inability to come to Jesus. You with me? And like we said before, this is not a physical inability to come to Jesus. It is a person's spiritual inability. Now you could translate it like this. No one has the ability to come to me unless... No one can come to Jesus on their own spiritual ability is the first point Jesus makes in verse 44. Unless, unless something else happens. What is it? What would make it possible for someone to come to Jesus? Now this is huge, so grab onto it. Understand this. Unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now here's an example where we can look back at some of those old theologians that thought through stuff a little bit more than, say, we do today. Let's go back 500 plus years to two theologians of the Reformation. A guy that you'll recognize right away, Martin Luther. He's one of the early reformers, nails the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg. Another guy, a Dutch philosopher and Catholic theologian, was one of the great scholars of his day of the Renaissance. His name was Erasmus. Uh, I love his first name. His first name is Desiderius. Desiderius Erasmus. And that's why we call him Erasmus. All right. They have this debate, okay, that really shaped the church. And part of their debate really will help us understand this. Erasmus did not agree with Martin Luther's teaching on radical depravity like you and I believe. Erasmus's point is that man is not so spiritually dead or depraved that he can't help God out with the salvation. He gave an example to show how Martin Luther was wrong. Erasmus said this thing that Jesus was teaching in verse 44. The father who sent me draws him. Erasmus says, it all comes down to the word draws. Now, Erasmus said what Jesus means here with that word draws, D-R-A-W-S, is like a man who entices a donkey with a handful of carrots. He holds them in front of the donkey's nose to lead the donkey. Do you get the picture? He draws the donkey. But the will of the donkey is clearly involved because the donkey wants what? The carrots. Now, with this example, Erasmus said, God originates salvation with a draw or an attraction, but man's will is still involved and cooperates with God. Now, I used to read this and think, right on. That's exactly what I believe, Erasmus. That makes sense in my head, doesn't it, to you? That God draws us to himself. I used to be right here. It makes so much sense. But let's look close. That's not what Jesus says in the scripture, is it? So Martin Luther answers Erasmus' doctrine. He says, but it is Jesus Christ himself that is doing the drawing, not something else. Earlier in this chapter, we saw Jesus declare that he was the son of God. He was the bread of life, the great I am. You remember? The crowd even saw him perform an amazing miracle or what John calls a sign. 
Something only God can do, and yet people still did not believe even after seeing that. Now later, not too long after this, the people would even try to kill Jesus. Many of these same people. But listen to what Martin Luther says here. Erasmus's point is that the will of the donkey is involved along with the will uh, like that of man holding the carrot, trying to draw the donkey. You got the picture? So Martin Luther says this. Now, we're going to read this slow because it's old school. So listen, the ungodly does not come even when he hears the word unless the father draws and teaches him inwardly which he does by shedding abroad his spirit. Notice capital S, talking about the Holy Spirit. When that happens, there follows a drawing other than that which is outward. Christ is then displayed by the enlightening of the spirit. Again, capital S. And by it, man is wrapped to, come to Christ with the sweetness, sweetest rapture. He, be, he being passive, while God speaks, teaches and draws rather than seeking or running himself. Rather than seeking or running himself. Now, good answer, but we can go even deeper. I know that's it's a little involved, but watch this. Let's see if we can put this in ordinary terms for us here in Colorado. Look at that word passive in Luther's statement. Luther said that man was passive, spiritually inert like a dead man. A dead man can't respond, can they? But the word passive doesn't really capture mankind's simple state before we're saved. Before we come to Christ, before we're saved, we're actually not passive. If passive means accepting or allowing what happens or what others do without active response or resistance. Because our sinful nature before Christ, we're not passive at all. We could really be better de- describing it that before we are born again, we are, we are resisting the work of God. We could even say mankind is not only sinful, he is perverse He is obstinate. He is wretched. Now, here is the key to understanding what Martin Luther was talking about. Look back in verse 44 at your Bible again. Let's look at it again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Underline that draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Erasmus is right in the verse that he says it hangs on this word draws. But he was wrong in a different way. Where he thought the word draws meant like the, the guy with the carriage drawing the donkey. That's not the picture. The word draws in the Greek is a much, much different meaning here. Now, this blew my mind, so make sure you understand what I'm saying to you here. When I read this back in the day, man... The Greek word that the word we use to translate draws or draw here is pronounced helkuo. Say that with me. Helkuo. All right, here it is. Helkuo or draws means to drag, pull, stretch, or haul. 
light's going on for some of you, isn't it? Means to drag, pull, stretch, or haul. R.C. Sproul, great theologian that just passed away a few years ago back in 2017, says that the biblical sense of the word draw here is to compel by overwhelming power. Instead of carrots luring the donkey in, this involves lassoing the donkey with a rope and pulling that donkey in. Think about this meaning here. Watch how the word is used in other passages. Helcuo. In John 18, verse 10, when the apostle John describes this, the Simon, Simon Peter, Jesus is being arrested, having his sword, drew it out and struck the high priest's ear. The drew or the draw is the same word. Got it? How about this in John 21, 11? So Simon Peter went abroad and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were many, the net was not torn. Do you get the picture? You don't get the same picture of Peter trying to hold some fish food at the edge and go, hey, could y'all get in the boat? Come on, hop in, hop in. That's, that's what Erasmus would have been saying. One more, and we'll see this. This is the Greek, same Greek word, Helcuo, Acts 16, verse 19. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. They didn't try to lure Paul and Silas in. They dragged them into the marketplace. Now, same word as we read in John 6, 44. Are you tracking here? Erasmus' argument very famously falls flat. Martin Luther clearly wins the argument, doesn't he? Erasmus' analogy simply just doesn't work. He has the wrong meaning, and yet I base my thought process on that for years. Now, side note, this is why we study church history. Because if we don't, we keep falling for the same false doctrines over and over that has swept into the church over the last 50 to 100 years. That's what has happened with so much of the modern church. And I was included in that too. They simply don't know the Bible well, the church, and they don't know church history at all. Now, with all of that, let's look back at verse 43 and verse 44 together and put what we know into what Jesus said in this verse. The crowd is upset with what Jesus has said. They're grumbling, they're complaining, but instead of backing down and apologizing for making the crowd so upset, Jesus says this, he addresses the real problem with the crowd. He said, Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him or compels by overwhelming power. And I will raise him up on the last day. Do you see the difference between the two ideas here? Do you see the difference? Now, certainly we do resist don't we? Sure we do. But here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing. Even though we resist, God still draws us. If he has set his will on us, he does the dragging. He does the saving. Theologian Leon Morris writes in his commentary on this verse, he says, there is not one example in the New Testament of the, of the use of this verb where the resistance is successful. 
Always the drawing power is triumphant as here. People resist. It is their depravity. In this, their depravity is seen. But the power of God always overcomes the resistance. Praise God. In those whom he has determined before the foundation of the world to give to Jesus. Praise God this is true. Because I'm hard-headed. I fought it because not only can I not save myself, I wouldn't save myself even if I could. Back to John 6, Jesus says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Jesus is giving us two big points of evidence that supports what Jesus is teaching here. First, he references the Old Testament. Compare John 6, 45 to Isaiah This is the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, verse 13. All your children shall be taught by the Lord. This is Yahweh in the Hebrew. And great shall be the peace of your children. Now, you could look at the word all, A-L-L, and maybe think, well, this is clearly talking about God teaching all men everywhere to come to Jesus or refuse to come to Jesus based on their will. It seems like that, but that won't work. Do you see why? Because look what it says. Your children. This is specifically addressing God's children, the chosen ones, his chosen people, the Jews. It's not talking about all the men on the earth. Now, what that means is that before someone can be taught by God, he must be a child of God. In other words, he must be redeemed, born again, before he can see what he needs to do to repent and to follow God. Again, we see regeneration precedes faith. I was taught the opposite. So were you. Saving faith is a result of being born again, not the cause of it. You did not save yourself. Faith is trusting because you have been born again. It is the conversion of giving Jesus control of your life. That is the response to being born again. Praise God. But remember, this happens like a match strike quickly. But then Jesus shows us that the truth is also confirmed by your experience. Look at this. Second half of verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. How many people come? Everyone who has heard and learned from God the Father comes to me. Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever shared the gospel with a friend or a family member or someone you were just sitting by on the plane and long plane ride and you share the gospel? Sometimes we can present the gospel and you've like got your Bible there. You're going through the Romans road um, and they just go, I don't get it. I don't get it. Or they're like a a cow looking at a new gate. Like Times like that when you share the gospel message and, and not get anywhere with them. And sometimes it seems like it's the perfect circumstance and, and, and nothing. And I'm like, can't, can't you see it? Jesus died for you. Follow him, believe. And then other times there are people that I'm thinking this person is never going to believe this guy is just too messed up. And boom, they go, I want to pray. And I'm like trying to convince them. They're going, no, 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 Pastor Paul, I want to pray. The answer, God has taught one person and not the other. Or you could say it this way. Every person that God has taught, 
does come to Jesus. I don't know how you could get around that verse. Look at this in verse 46. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Jesus is pointing out again that he is the only way to get to God the Father. Or another way to say it, it is that if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Jesus started preaching this now much smaller group and he has given two points of evidence to support what he has taught. Now in verse 47, he's going to teach the necessity of our role in needing to believe. Look at this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Now, back in the day when I was taught um, the doctrines of grace and, and I thought they were bogus, I actually thought that this verse showed that the doctrines of grace were not true. Because I suppose that people had to decide first to make a choice and then believe first, then as a result of our believing, be saved. All right, it, it was only then that we had eternal life in Christ. That's what many of you believe. And, and praise God, if you're, you're saved, just to challenge you. Here's when the light went on for me. See if it does for you. The verse has to be read in context with the other verses and those around it. Because if we don't do that, we can get the verse wrong in its message. Let's read it all together, okay? Watch this. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. They were grumbling. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. If this last verse stood alone, maybe it would make some kind of sense that doesn't support Jesus' teaching. But when we read it in context like we just did, it fits perfectly, doesn't it? Let me say it another way to help us. If we take verse 47 as some kind of evidence against the doctrines of grace, it would be like what Jesus said is, hey, 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 everything I just told you, I didn't really mean it. I was just joking. God's not really involved. It's all up to you. What do you say? That makes no sense at all. Now, there's a great analogy we can use here from pastor um, and theologian Donald Gray Barnhouse. Imagine soldiers are advancing on an enemy line. You get the picture? Suddenly they begin to take heavy fire. They all drop to the ground, fall flat. Some have died, some are alive, some are unwounded. When the firing stops, the commanding officer gives the command to advance. Who gets up and advances? The ones that are alive. The soldiers that can hear the command. Why? They hear and believe the voice of their commander. Now, does their getting up give them life? No, it's ridiculous. It's the other way around. 
In the same way, the person that believes on Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord hears his voice and he gives them eternal life. The hearing and believing are the marks of the existence of the new life God has given them in that regeneration. If you're not a Christian, these doctrines of grace should give you great hope. You have no hope in yourself, in your own spiritual ability. In yourself, you cannot choose Christ. God, you can't choose him. So how awesome is it that God is able to do what you cannot do for yourself? He can draw you to throw a rope around you and drag you to safety. On the other hand, for you believers out there that really struggle with this old Orthodox doctrine, if you will, the doctrines of grace, if you'll latch onto them and learn from them, they will change the way you feel about your salvation, I promise you. I'm not saying that you're not saved. I'm not saying that if you don't agree with me. No, what I'm saying is that you'll finally understand and get past this fear that maybe you'll somehow lose your salvation because it was just something that you kind of decided to do that you believed in your head. No, God saved you. Or that Jesus chose you before you, uh, or that uh, Jesus chose you because you chose him. Some of you believe that. And if you screw up too much, too many times, he'll unchoose you. Wrong. Listen to me. He chose you because he chose you. Because he chose you. Because he loves you. Do you hear me? You didn't do anything to be good enough. You chose him because he chose you first. Before the foundation of the world. He set his electing love on you for his good purposes. He looked at your mess of a life and called you to life to live for him so that your life would bring him glory. If you're getting this today, hey, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit. I'm just simply not that good. If you're thinking, but Paul, my life is so screwed up Paul, you don't know the kind of sins that I've committed, how dark my life really is. And I would say, I don't know, but Jesus does. And he loves you enough to wade into the mess of your life, into your sin, and call you to be his followers. Will you turn from your sin? Will you believe in Jesus? Will you say, I'll change teams? I can't make you. Then follow him, convert, change teams, quit living for yourself and sin and live for Jesus. Make his name big in your life. Make him the reason for your living. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as I think about these doctrines of grace, I'm just humbled that I fought so hard for so long that it was my opinion that mattered more than your sovereignty, more than your providence. That God, you called me to life. That you gave me life when I would have chosen death. 
God, I pray for the believers in this room right now that they would understand that your electing love, your call in their life was because you chose them. And like you said, Jesus, I chose you before you chose me. Help us understand that we are in you, Christ Jesus. And for those of you that are not believers, you're not Christians, would you look up here at me just for a moment? This thing that you're looking at, you're hearing right now, is what we call the gospel message. It's not hard to understand. It is hard to accept. Here's what I mean. Your sin separates you from a holy God. But Jesus is God, the Son of God. He says, I will come and take on the flesh of mankind. I will live this perfect life with no sin. Then he goes to the cross. He is killed And because he doesn't have any sin, he takes the sin of all those who would believe. He takes that, and that sin is paid for. Now listen carefully. Every sin ever committed in the history of the world will either be paid for by the person who sinned in hell and death for eternity, in punishment, or by Jesus on the cross. See, the only difference between a believer and a non-believer is this, that Jesus took the sins of the believers and paid for them. And not only that, is then he gave the righteousness that was due him because he lived that perfect life. He gave that righteousness, and it's a funny word, but it's imputation. He inputted it into the account of the believer so that when God looks at the believer, he no longer sees the sin that they were guilty of. It's been paid for. Now, here's the thing. Believing, before you believe, before you change teams, you need to know Jesus promises something. He says life will be hard. If you follow me, life will be hard. It'll be full of joy, yes, but it'll be full of suffering too. There'll be pain. He said, take my cross on you. He said, carry my cross, bear my burden. In other words, live for Jesus the rest of your life. But he also makes another promise that he will come and take his people home. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that is. This week, I did a service for one of our bent treers that died unexpectedly. Boom. Died before he hit the ground. He loved the Lord. We'd had deep conversations about him, about following the Lord. And I'm, I've always been, as a pastor, a guy that's walked with people through death and that kind of thing. I'm just telling you, you don't know how long you have. You could be dead before he hit the ground. Today is the day for salvation. Switch teams. Say no to your old dead self. Say yes to Jesus. If this is making sense, you've been called to life. Follow Jesus. Pray this with me. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for giving, for forgiving my sins by sending Jesus as a stub, substitute to pay for my sins. God, I want to change teams. I want to follow you all my days. Show me how to do that. Thank you for saving me. And then end your prayer like this. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.